Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word? We're picking up in John chapter 10, I mean John chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 24. John chapter 20. We're going to pick up in verse 24. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Zach, we're skipping a whole section. Yes, because I preached on it during Easter. So if it's just driving you nuts to skip a section, go online, look back to Easter, listen to it there. As we turn, I want us to bear in mind that every single human being is in dialogue with God. Every human being. For we all stand in some sort of of covenantal union with God. We know what a covenant is. It's an agreement between two parties with certain obligations and promises. God made a covenant with Adam, and Adam as a representative of all those who would be descended from him. And he's made a covenant with us through Jesus Christ, through faith. So everybody stands in some relationship to God. Even those who do not have the words of Scripture, the the Psalm 19 and other places tell us that God speaks to them day and night through the things He has made. Everybody is in some sort of dialogue with God. And as we all know, there's a spectrum, isn't there? You have some people who are fiercely opposed to God and all things connected to Him. We know some who are living in ignorance. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We know the good old boy from the south that knows who Noah is and who Jesus is and who Goliath is, but they don't believe And then we know the believer, don't we? The believer whose life is daily racked by unbelief. I think each of us here prayed the prayer in the book of Mark. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We see it in the anxious Christian, in the worrisome Christian, in the disquieted Christian, in the complaining Christian. We see even the believers who struggle with unbelief, but we see there's a spectrum. And God is in conversation with all. I want to think about that, and I want to tease that out, and I want to pick it up in our sermon in a sentence. And it's really, for me, been the guiding focus of the every sermon from John 17 to this last summary statement. John 21 is like the end credit saying, so bear with me. It's been the driving focus. And there's really a quote by J.C. Ryle that I can't shake. Jesus is more willing to save than we are to be saved. Jesus is more willing to save than we are 
to be saved. Let's pray. We'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we come to the end of a very important section in John where John summarizes everything in a nutshell. We need help grasping the full picture, the totality of what you have revealed and what you're speaking to us. Lord, be gracious to us as you speak to us through your word and the preaching of the word. With your spirit, give us ears to hear that we may take these things, receive them by faith, and cherish them in our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're in chapter 20, verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. You know what I love about John? John tells us why. That you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I love that I don't have to solve a riddle to figure out why John is writing the book. Now, when John makes this statement, I do not believe that John is referring to the entirety of the book because the book's not over. John is not one of those bad preachers that says one more thing, and then he says one more thing. John is summarizing the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's selective. He says, I could have written a whole range of things, but I wrote these. They serve this purpose. That purpose tells us something, doesn't it? What is the difference 
between a paring knife and a scalpel. Its purpose, its intent, it's what you're doing with it. The question for us here is to see what is John's purpose? Why does John include the arrest? An act with details that the other disciples do not. Why does he include the moments at the cross of which he does? Why does he include the interview with Pilate that no one else does? Why does he include doubting Thomas? How do these stories tell us about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God? How does it tell us about Jesus Christ and the life He's willing to give and the salvation He's willing to bring? How, what does it tell us about our receptivity to it? Let's talk about Jesus first and His willingness. And what I want us to do is to walk through this account with Thomas for a minute. Let me say, let's just take this in four stages. We can say first, Jesus knew Thomas. He knew Thomas. Now on one hand, he knew Thomas because they spent three and a half years together. He knew his temperament. He knew his habits. You get to know somebody. He knows that Thomas has a prove me wrong type attitude. You remember when Lazarus has died and Jesus says, let's go to Bethany. Well, Bethany is next to Jerusalem where they want to kill Jesus. And the disciples are up in arms. And so Thomas says, well, let's just go and die with him. Prove me wrong, Jesus, that this won't happen. But Jesus' knowledge of Thomas goes deeper than the fact that they simply spent time together. Jesus is Lord and God. That's a verse I'd encourage us out here especially to keep in mind. Because I know when we lived in the manse, our good friends from the Jehovah's Witness love to knock on the door. And the Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus is not God. He's an angel. That's heresy. This passage refutes that. Jesus is Lord and God and we see it. We see it. He's a very God, a very God who searches hearts. Who says to Samuel that he does not look the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. How do we know? Jesus knew when the disciples would be gathered together. He didn't have Life 360. He, didn't, he wasn't in the group message. He was the omniscient God. Notice, he knew exactly what words Thomas spoke eight days prior. He is not, you know, it wasn't as if 
Thomas had his phone laying out and Jesus is another, is China listening in. He wasn't spying on Thomas. He's the omniscient God. He knows Thomas and he repeats them back to him with a little wink and a nod. I know Thomas. He knew. Now tell me, how would you respond to Thomas if you were Jesus and you knew? Would you junk ugly with him? Would you give him the shakedown? Would you bust in the room, grab him by the shirt collar, and give him a deluge of maledictions and curses? Would you, would you meet him with fear and terror? Or to use a southern expression, would you rub his nose in it? It's not what Jesus did, is it? Notice what the first word Jesus spoke was. Peace. Peace be unto you. That's why I love Psalm 103 where it says, He knows our frame that we are but dust. Could you place yourself in Thomas's shoes? There's an old song that comes to mind. Uh, give me three steps. And it says, I was shaken like a leaf on a tree. I don't think any words could better summarize Thomas's feelings when Jesus walked through the door. One harsh word from Jesus would have sent Thomas into an absolute tailspin. And yet, Isaiah 42 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not put out. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He has a statue, and at the bottom of the statue, the feet are a mixture of iron and clay. Iron is strong. It's an unbreakable metal at the time. Clay, however, is very weak. Such is the heart of every believer. Thomas wholeheartedly is a believer. But he would call him Doubting Thomas for a reason. He's dealing with doubt. The faith, that fortitude, that unbreakable bond is mixed with unbelief. I have seen it happen in the strongest of Christians. Great disease comes upon them and their children and they feel as if God has abandoned them. They pray. They hear no answer and they pray and they pray and time dulls their spiritual senses. And their faith begins to have the rust of unbelief on it. We see it in Isaiah 49 where Israel says, The Lord has forgotten us. So Isaiah speaks words of comfort. We see it in Genesis 15 with Abraham when he says, I ain't got no children. God speaks words of peace. 
We see it with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. Overwhelmed by sorrow and certain poverty, and Jesus speaks words of peace. Over and over, he uses words to bring grace to the humble, to bind up the brokenhearted, to carry the weak, to heal the injured. He could have gave him the shakedown. Instead, he builds him up. Knows what does he do with these words? He does more than words, he acts. He knew him. He spoke to him, but he also acted for him. I want to read verse 21 for a moment. Jesus said to Thomas, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. That has been a statement and a sentence that has shook me all week long. I want you to just consider a few things with me. The resurrected Jesus still bears the scars he endured for us. I have a wedding ring. It reminds me of the covenant vows the union I have with Jessica. However, this is like my fifth one. I keep losing these things. Jesus' scars are a permanent reminder of the union he has with his people. And you cannot misplace a scar, can you? It is always there. Not just Jesus in flesh. Jesus that was laid in a manger, but his scarred flesh is a permanent reminder of what he's done for us. But not only this, the resurrected Jesus who bears these scars, who's crowned with glory, who's triumphed over sin, Satan, and death itself, makes a special visit just to console Thomas. I can remember someone come to my office once. They're in dire straits. And they said, I can't ask God for help. He's too busy helping all them kids at St. Jude. He don't have time to deal with my problems. Jesus in our text has bigger fish to fry. And yet he makes a visit to strengthen Thomas's weak faith. He should be taking a victory lap. Not helping those who lag behind. But look at this. And instead of gracing him merely with his presence, that should have been enough. Look, Thomas, I am real. I am resurrected. The resurrected Jesus, in his glory, brought his scars on a special visit for Thomas to touch. 
from the touch. That just... Jessica says, Hey, sweetie, did you take the trash out? Me saying yes is enough. If Jessica were to go and say, Let me go look. Let me open the trash can. Well, at that point, it's almost insulting, isn't it? You don't believe me? Jesus walking in should have been enough. And yet, in his glory, he comes down to the level of Thomas's weak faith and says, Touch me. Put your hand in my side. Bury your unbelief where the spear was once buried. In the very place where, where death died, so did Thomas's unbelief. Now does Thomas's declaration make sense to us? Where God tells Israel that he's the one that took them up in his arms, that fed them, that taught them how to walk, when he showed this expression of love and tenderness, Thomas experiences it firsthand. Just tell me, is there anybody anywhere else in heaven and earth that you can experience that kind of love and tenderness? No one on earth will love you like that. But then Jesus does one last thing. He knows him. He speaks to him. He acts, but he also corrects. Have you ever broken a bone? It's got to be reset. Have you ever broken your nose? I've got to put it back in place. Jesus does the same thing. We see it in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and believe, have yet and yet have believed. Jesus is correcting Thomas. He reminds him of the blessings he missed because of his unbelief. And yet, notice where it comes in the story. Jesus doesn't walk in, grab him by the shirt collar, and remind him of all the things his stupidity caused him to miss out on. No. Jesus heals his wounded soul, and then he corrects his wounded soul. He first applies the gospel before strengthening him with the law. The law's commands have a role in the Christian life, but it's always secondary to the gospel. The gospel saves us, and then the law begins to show us how to believe, to walk in the good works which God prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. We can think of it like physical therapy. In the same way, Jesus does heart surgery on Thomas and teaches him how to walk. Do you see the tenderness of Jesus Christ? We go to the doctor, and the doctors nowadays, they pop in, they do what they need to do, and they pop out. They ain't got time to spend with us. I've worked with the board of supervisors 
They don't have time to shoot the bull. They're not calling to check on me. We think of presidential elections and we follow these men and we, we wish great things. They care nothing of us. They're not going to visit us on our deathbed. They're not going to, to ease our fears in the dead of night. And yet look at how Jesus treats Thomas. A worm of a man. Jesus is more willing to save us than we are to be saved. Now, remember our purpose statement. John says he wrote these things that you may believe. Notice he doesn't say so Thomas might believe. John breaks the fourth wall. He looks into the camera and he looks at us and he says, I'm writing these things so you might believe. If this is the case, look at the pictures that John has given us. On one hand, we see the picture of the Pharisees and the Pilots. They knew who Jesus was. They were unwilling to be saved. The Jews were in the garden when Jesus said, I am, and they fell down before him. They knew who he was. Pilate calls him the king of the Jews and acknowledges that he has a heavenly kingdom. I said it last week, I'll say it again. It's not the lack of reasons to believe, it's the lack of a will to believe. They did not want to believe. There are no cannots in hell. Only will nots. But we see this picture of Jesus, a tender, a compassionate, and a merciful king. It's one thing to sin against your boss when he's a jerk. It's another thing to sin against your boss when he's so good to you. If this is the character of our Savior, what is it like to sin against that sort of mercy? I can only put it in the words of Jesus. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who sinned against such a merciful Savior. I just want to point out both of those parties knew who Jesus was. But they did not believe. The Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. Do you know who destroyed the temple in 70 AD? It was Caesar. Pilate trusted the Jews to preserve his job. Guess who was outed a few years later? It was Pilate. If we put our trust in something besides Jesus Christ, it will be our downfall. Pilate, the Pharisees knew who Jesus was and chose otherwise to their own destruction. 
I don't think a better description could be made of the Bible Belt. Secondly, we see another picture. We see Nicodemus and Joseph, men who believed in Jesus Christ and came out of the darkness to proclaim his marvelous light. They found life. We know they found life. How? Because they gave of themselves. Their cup overfloweth, and they were willing to pour out their reputation, their standing, their wealth, their everything, because they had a life from out of this world. Their belief pushed them to action. Isn't that what life does? There was someone in front of my office this week. I had to jump off. Why? His battery was dead. His battery was dead. His vehicle had no life. How do we know if we have life? We're doing something with it. Thus we see Nicodemus and Joseph. Lastly, we could be as Peter, as Mary, and as Thomas. These three were believers, but they wrestled with unbelief. J.C. Ryle says, Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his arms, many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none of them away. Happy is the Christian who has learned likewise to deal with his brothers. There are many in the church who are like Thomas, dull and slow, but for all that are like Thomas, real and true believers. Unbelief comes up in so many ways when we grieve uncontrollably. When we have anxiety and we're fearful of how the Lord will provide. When there's anger and animosity we bear in our heart. When there's a peace and disquiet among us. All of these are symptoms of unbelief. And yet, there's a poem in a children's book that says this. If we had hinges on our head, there wouldn't be no sin. Because we could take the bad stuff out and leave the good stuff in. Is that how it works? I wish that's how it works. Let me give you an alternative and we'll close with this. I read recently a question. How do you get air out of a jar? How do you get air out of a jar? Answer pretty easy, isn't it? You fill it with water. You fill it with water. You can't create a vacuum. That doesn't work. You fill it with water. How are we going to get rid of the unbelief in our hearts? We look at this Savior who is more willing to save us than we are to be saved. The more we see His tenderness the more likely we are to run to Him in our weakness. The more that we see 
the glorious resurrected Jesus Christ bearing wounds for us in heaven. Wounds that do not detract from his glory, neither will he see his wounded children as distracting. When we see a Savior who dwells with the humble and broken in spirit that makes special visitations to our soul just as he did Thomas, so too our hearts will be filled with water, with faith and unbelief will perish. I know I'm a little long in the tooth this morning, but I had something to say. We hold on to unbelief because we want to. We want to feel like there's something we can control. Jesus is more willing to come to us in our weakness than we are to let go of it. This morning, if you are an unbeliever, spurning this mercy will cost you eternal damnation. But if you are a believer, you find that struggle of unbelief in your heart. I do. You all do. It's part of living in this world. How is it overcome? By laying hold of the Savior who is willing to go the extra mile to come to the lowest of depths for us. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, I do lift up my hearts to you this morning. So thankful that you're more willing to hear us than we are to pray. You're more willing to forgive than we are to repent. You're more willing to bury, to care our burdens, carry our burdens, and we are to lay them down. In every way, you have shown yourself gracious, merciful, and abounding in compassion. Lord, help us to lay hold of your willingness that we may find this unbelief in our heart overcome. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.